giant cacophony tells you without once more, it's the Power of Three podcast. The Doctor Who podcast that's made in Scotland from, well, I wouldn't say girders, but usually three Scottish people at a time, uh, chatting about all things Doctor Who, whether it's on the telly, in magazines, comics, occasionally, uh, audio, or any other form. And today we're going to be talking with the author of a television story, who has more recently novelised his work. I'm Kenny Smith, and I'm joined by two of my regular compadres. And if you're on Twitter, if Twitter's still around uh, in this week that we're talking, then who knows? And you'll have noticed that their names have been added to our regular cast, because it's something that I thought I'd done months ago and hadn't, so I apologise to them. So in alphabetical order of first name, and last name as well, I shall introduce you to my co-conspirators today. Co-conspirator number one, what's your name and where'd you come from? My name is John Boland Kenny and I come from Gallifrey. Thank you. Co-conspirator number two, what's your name and where'd you come from? I feel like Scylla Black, but not dead. I'm Stephen Bay and I come from the third moon of Gallifrey. Oh, interesting. I thought you were going to say like the moon of Scarrow. What was it? Scardal, is that its name? From that Marks and Spencer's oh. Dalek exclusive book from the seventies. Was it not? Was it not something? Oh, that I'm remembering. I'm just re-listening to Falcus. It's Falcus. He's got all these, but they're not two or three moons. Maybe there are. I can't remember. Now I'm all confused. Anyway, we're not talking about Daleks. We're not talking about Scarrow. We're going into e space today, as we've got a little chat with Stephen Gallagher coming up shortly. But we're talking about Warrior's Gate, which he has recently re-novelised, of course, um, having originally done it as John Lydecker. And back then, when he did that, he'd started work with the novelisation and uh, then had to change it at the behest of John Nathan Turner. So we'll find out all about that quite soon. So when you think of Warriors Gate, fellas, what do we think of? Stevie, what's your first thoughts? What do you remember about the first time you saw it? Uh, totally enthralled by it all. Loved it. I love it to this day. I felt it was more like a film than watching an episode of Doctor Who. I still remember how it was shot. And again, that just, it's all filmic. What a story. And I love the effects. I, I haven't rewatched them. I don't know how well they stand up to things. I love the concept. I love the meeting of time travelers. And it was my introduction to Dwarf Star Alloy, which was a real thing. Although. It was in Blake 7 on the last series as well. I don't know which came first. Ooh. Mm. Interesting. Ooh. Dr. Bolin, what do you recall about your first viewing of Warrior's Gate? Um, well, my first viewing was when it was screened. Uh, and I remember the, the sense of it being part of this new more grown-up feeling Doctor Who. Uh, so there was a bit of me that didn't necessarily understand everything that was happening. But as, as Stevie was saying, you know, it looked it looked amazing. Um, uh, so if I if I didn't follow all of it at the time, I think I was probably just saying, oh, this is probably because it's a bit too it's a bit too advanced for me. Um, but yeah, it was a it was a it was a um, quite a hypnotic watch. I remember um, it had 
had such a kind of a, an ethereal feel to it, which I think was reflected beautifully in the in the incidental music as well. I know we keep talking about music, but it's a massive part of of a, of, of, of the program. So I just remember, you know, that kind of ghostly music that was, you know, from the from the banquet from the feast scene. I can still hear that in my in my head. So 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 yeah. I mean, famously, it's you know, in terms of its its visual look, it's um, borrowed a lot from Cocteau, you know. So yeah, I mean, that's an ambitious and unusual pitch for a for a Doctor Who story. So yeah, it's a strange but beautiful, as as people say about you, Kenny. That's absolutely true. It's it's a wonderful thing, and, and I like, I'd like to thank you for being so kind, John. It's the nicest thing anyone said about me today. Um, yeah, I'm absolutely with you. I was six when this was broadcast, and I just remember being absolutely mesmerised by it. Just the the stark white of the the void outside the gateway, just just gripping, and the Tharrells look fantastic. I think the fact there's something that a monster that we can sort of realise and realise what they're based on with them being so Leonine, and we can get that influence. They're well played. The, the performances are fantastic, and the fact we've got effectively a bunch of space pirates out there as well with it just works on every single level. There's great characters. We're at a time when quite a lot of season eighteen has a bunch of boring old men with beards, and here we've got one that's actually got interesting characters who feel very real particularly like him Royce and the other chap um, sort of the comedy double act and sort of giving a bit of comic relief when things are going on and the thing that really really struck me time, not just K9 leaving but was just how brilliant Lala Ward is she just mm. absolutely rules the story I mean she is she just proved that how you should play a female doctor just absolutely owns every scene. She walks into the room and she looks around and she's just got that naturally haughty air about her, a proper time lady. And she owns the room and there's no question about who's the boss. And I just think she absolutely steals it on screen. Sorry, Tom, but this is a very much Lala show. Would you agree with that, John? Yep, absolutely. Um, I would point out, of course, that there are, there are also beards in this. Um, fuels are being slightly <laughs> just, picked on. Just a few, yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah, it, it goes without saying. This is this is her her story. This is her swan song, um, and I think she she does it beautifully. I think you know, um, as as you, as you said there, that you know, it is a masterclass in in, in how to be a female time lord, how to be a, a female doctor, even. And uh, yeah, uh, of course, it's quite poignant, bearing in mind what was probably going on in the, in the background in terms of her own personal life and her relationship with the star of the show. Um, but I think it's uh, yeah, and it's also importantly, it gives us an ending, but also an open ending to to all that follows for for the character. So yeah, wonderful stuff, Mister D. I think the the performances in this. Um, I'm not going to say dialed back, I don't mean that, because there's lots of action, there's lots of noise, but there just seems to be a different a different kind of energy on there, different kind of way of approaching it. I would almost say the set is a bit alien, as in the film, not as 
of worldy. There's an awful lot going on there. And I think, you know, her swan song, I think it was a good end to the character. I know we've continued her on audio, which is, is great. Um, from experience, when you, when you play a character, um, you know, from my experience, just doing shows and maybe three or four performances in a week, your best performance is normally heading towards your last performance if you've got a good character because you know you're saying goodbye to them and that just gives a an extra energy and I wonder whether that's what was going on here you know she was going out on a high but on a, a good high it's unfortunate when we look back and see well that was that character how wonderful she was in our last episode and what we what we missed what we could have had if there had been further episodes like this would it have worked maybe not with all that was going on as you say john there was a an awful lot of undercurrents there uh, but i think she did a, a cracking job and i think that's i don't know i was 10 or 11 i think there was a tear in my eyes she and canine disappeared off into the oddly green screen cso background um but yeah very moving a very moving story i thought and i thought it it works so well Mm-hmm. I think John mentioned earlier the visuals, just with the walking into photographs, which are just the fact they're in black and white, it just and they're in colour. I mean, it's obviously that's a thing we can do with a photo app these days very, very easily. But just you know, back then, it just looked so different and mm-hmm. it's just so clever. I mean, I think there's so many great characters like Rorvik is is just great as the frustrated uh, captain of the privateer and getting so annoyed with his crew and all the, the inefficiencies. And and then, of course, we've got the Gundam robots as well, which mm-hmm. I think look yeah. great. They're obviously Super men in cool, suits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was my, you know, I, you, you kind of knew when you watched it, the possibility of it coming alive. You didn't know that was going to happen. I hadn't seen Cybermen for real at that point. So that was as close as I got to Cybermen. And I was thinking, oh, you know, but cleverly designed, cleverly used. I think when I first saw it, the whole slavery thing just kind of washed over my head. Didn't quite get it. But on rewatching, it's kind of like, hmm, interesting. Yeah. Just um, mentioning the Gundans there, did either of you make it to the exhibition in Paisley back around 91, 92, when the Gundan robot was there? No. No, I don't, oh. I don't think I was in the country at the time but you can correct me on that was it it wasn't during the, the summer holiday was it it was during the summer holidays was it oh mm-hmm. well i don't know why i didn't go then i remember i remember seeing photographs of it at the time but no i didn't i didn't go but i, I know i know you were there kenny and i know that um that mr Steele was there as well it was a very important moment for doctor who in scotland it time. felt like it it felt like because there's because if you push the button the gundan would sort of lunge forward in fact you can see it at the start of the shada video with tom doing the links which is oh gundan robot and uh, pushes the button and it doesn't quite lurch properly and it pushes it again and then it does the chop thing so mm-hmm. yeah it was quite it was quite nicely done um and again a wonderful musical score on it as well which as you mentioned john and uh, we can hear in the background just now oh yes spooky incredible you'd almost think i'd pre-planned that wouldn't you um yeah but it's um for me it's one of those great stories i mean my two favorite stories from season 18 
at this when I first watched them were Full Circle and Warrior's Gate, and I have to say they still are today. Mm-hmm. You know, I think those two similar but different. Um, I still think of um, Full Circle and I still remember being a bit freaked out by uh, spiders coming out of watermelons. Mm-hmm. But it's that it's that similar feeling. Those are those are two two that I will happily rewatch. No listeners, listeners can't see this, but what Stevie's done at the moment is changed his background to Gundam robots, and uh, it is very, very good. Uh, the two of them standing there side by side, you can see the skull-type face poking through one, so I rather like that. So, Okay, let's um, jump over to meet today's guest, and we'll let him introduce himself. Hello, I'm Stephen Gallagher, and many, many years ago, I wrote the TV show Warrior's Gate for Doctor Who, and more recently, I republished the original novelization. Wonderful to have you on the podcast, Steve. Thanks very much for your time. Oh, happy to be here. I suppose. Happy to be anywhere, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a very Tom Baker answer, I have to say. <laughs> it's, uh, when people say it's nice to see you, and Tom always replies, it's nice to be seen. Uh, <laughs> it rubs off. Yeah. <laughs> These things are stick. I suppose. Um, when you were commissioned to do Warrior's Gate, I suppose it never really crossed your mind that pretty much for the rest of your career, it's something that people would have an interest in. Absolutely, honestly, no. Uh, because bear in mind, this was uh, this was you know just the the turn of the seventies going into the eighties when uh, when the commission was made. Uh, there was no VHS. You know, Doctor Who was um, not a hugely well regarded show. You know, it, it had its following, but it didn't have the huge fandom that it's got now, and it wasn't well regarded within the BBC. You sometimes got the impression that um, when people were sent down to work on the show, it was kind of like a punishment detail for, for something they'd done <laughs> terrible <laughs> somewhere else in the in the organisation, and uh, and they were sent to work on Doctor Who with um, with minimal resources, um, and you know. W- w- I've got to say, with maximum enthusiasm, everybody put, you know, their their absolute best into the show, but they didn't, you know, they were they were they were knitting wonders out of uh, out of straw and air, um, and it's it's a testament, I think, to the um, to the fundamental concept and to the dedication of the people over the years that it's lasted as well as it has, and it carries the magic that it does even now. It definitely does, and um, as we're saying before it started, I was six when Warriors Gate went out, and I just loved it. It's just that the look of it, the feel of it. There's just the fairy tale sort of feel to it all. It's just something. There's something there for everyone. Of course, the older I get, the more I appreciate the layers of it and everything that's in there. And I suppose that's some, the sort of thing that you're aiming for when you're doing that for something for everyone. Yeah, I mean. There was, yeah, it was a conscious thing, you know, the the layers that went in there. But um, I wouldn't say that it was, you know, the, uh, the the work of a fantastically controlled, intelligent artist. It was basically me with a shovel and a wheelbarrow, just shoveling in everything that I was enthusiastic about at the time. You know, so I was quite a young guy. I was in my mid twenties, and um, I'd I'd had a an education in in the creative arts you know I, I i was a drama student i was an english literature student i i was i was heady with all of the um you know the wonders of uh, of you know our creative history and also i was hugely into film so that's where the jean cocteau and that's where the uh, you know the the, the cousins of uh, hamlet all fed into you know last year at marion bad all those movies you know had an influence on warrior's gate 
plus you know a ton of other stuff that, that that came from all different directions and all of this stuff kind of synthesized in my somewhat fevered 25 26 year old brain at the time and um, and splurged out on screen then gave you know a huge amount of problems to everybody else who then had to translate and realize the whole thing um but i've got to say you know and i've done some some sort of discussion and reviewing of the of the production problems of warriors gate and i've got to say they didn't really touch me to any great extent i handed my stuff over and then everybody else kind of went to each other's throats and uh, and, <laughs> and went into a panic and uh, and you know got into the arguments and you know plugs were pulled and uh, and technicians walked and all of that stuff that you can read about in uh, in the black archive book that frank frank collins did all of that didn't touch me at all. You know, I sat there with stars in my eyes thinking I'm getting a TV show made. Then after that, when I looked at what I'd set out to do and what I'd handed in and what they'd done with it, I got a bit miffed because bear in mind, my experience up to this point had all been in radio drama. So I'd handed in a pretty heavily overwritten script, a very over-controlling script, you know, where uh, where I I kind of nailed down in great detail everything I wanted to be seen on the screen at any given moment, and that had to be stripped out and rejigged and uh, and you know cut down into a shooting script. And you know, young guy that I was, naive as I was, I I was hurt by that. So what then followed were uh, <laughs> what, what I refer to as the years of outrage where you know just like the blue touch paper and i'd go off about warrior's gate at any given opportunity that very quickly i hope went away and now i've got a, a realistic view of um, of that whole experience which is you know, somewhere in the past but to an extent has never left me either and i feel more sanguine about it now i'm really happy to have done the show i'm happy to involve with all the people who are involved with the show and um, i think everybody did a terrific job on it Fantastic. I suppose, like um, like Andrew Smith, you were one of the first writers to work in Doctor Who who'd actually grown up with it. Yeah, I mean, you know, you talk about being six or seven when uh, when you saw Warrior's Gate. I was about the same age when I saw William Hartnell and the Daleks in that very first Dalek adventure. So it makes a tremendous impression on you. And, you know, it's, it's like with James Bonds. Everybody you meet has their doctor, and their doctor is usually the first one that they saw. It's, it's, it's unusual for people to lose that first affinity and that first loyalty. So for me, you know, Doctor Who is always that kind of creaky black and white show on my grandma's TV that I saw. And everything else after that has been a bonus. Um, but everything traces back to that for me. So I suppose, you know, from the point of view of somebody who joined when you did, then everything will trace back to season 18. You know, that's where the, that's where the family tree begins. Definitely does, and loved it ever since. It's um, it's just a, such a wonderful thing to have because it's brought me some of my best friends in life and, you know, who've helped me through good times, bad times. And in between, I'm watching this TV show sort of takes away from the darker moments that, you know, we sometimes have in life. I mean, for example, the day after both my parents passed away, I watched The Five Doctors as a comfort blanket thing because it just, there was that thing from my childhood. And it's nice to have that thing that, that just takes you away from something, a difficult time in life. Oh, I can well understand that. And, uh, and I was at uh, an event in... Um in Blackpool a few weeks ago uh, with the Cutaway Comics guys. And I kind of made the observation to uh, to somebody I was sitting with that um, 
there is a huge range of people come to these events and um, there is always a terrific sense of warmth and companionship and comradeship there. And there are, you know, there are some people who, who come along to Doctor Who events who you suspect life is not as kind to them outside of these walls as it is when they're with their people. And for that, that's something rare. You can't manufacture it. You can't, um, you can't schedule it. You can't create it. It kind of happens, you know, when people come together. And, um, and that's one of the things I think I'm most grateful for from, uh, from my association with the show in that it, um, it connects me to that, that shared warmth and that shared humanity that, um, the old, I was going to say all Doctor Who fans share, but then again, you get the vitriol online, which just doesn't reproduce itself, you know, yeah. in person when people meet up. And uh, and I think there is, I don't know, there's an academic study to be made there as to... Uh, <laughs> the psychology of the Doctor Who fan. The well, Jekyll and Hyde syndrome in Doctor Who fandom, yeah. Most definitely. So I suppose let's um, wind back to when you were doing the original novelisation for Warriors. What do you remember about the process and how that came about? And... Why didn't your name appear on it? Well, I belted it out at great speed. Um, I had done a couple of novelizations of my independent local radio serials, which were the very first kind of dramatic work I'd ever done for a local radio station. And I'd managed to blag my way into selling the, that as a trilogy of paperbacks, uh, of which only only two books ever came out until last year, when, when the third one finally made it out. But that was my experience. No, radio scripts into into novels. So when I handed my um, final draft of the scripts in, I immediately pivoted and started on the novelization. And within a few weeks, I was delivering it to Christine Doniger, WH Allen, who was uh, the target editor there. And of course, what I'd done is I'd based it on the pre-edited scripts, you know, before uh, Chris Bidmead and Paul Joyce got their hands on it and uh, and recut and uh, and reshuffled and uh, and rearranged everything. So when that um, version of the novel was shown to John Nathan Turner, he wouldn't pass it. He uh, he said oh, it's too far from the show. So I had to I had to do a makeover on it, a literal kind of cut and paste physical makeover of the manuscript. And um, Unfortunately, no copy of the original manuscript survived. I'd sent out Xeroxes to uh, WH Allen, and obviously a Xerox had made its way to uh, to the production office. But I only had, you know, my original, and so my original got destroyed in the process. But I did keep all the bits, and because it was uh, it was a, a physical rearrangement, then keeping all the bits plus. <laughs> If you held the original pages up to the light, you could still read the old text through the tipex. <laughs> so, so, so there became this myth over the years of um, of the the lost novelization, you know that version. But to go back to your question about why it didn't go out under my name, at the same time, I was sort of starting to. I was I was building a writing career at the time, um, very very purposefully, and and I, and I had a. I had a plan for it. In August of 1980, I left my job at Granada Television in Manchester uh, to become a freelance writer. So, you know, I had to be businesslike about it. And I had a novel career going with Chimera, which um, I just delivered and I think might have come out by then. I'm not quite sure. You know, the, the memory gets a bit vague at that point. But 
I'd also, in 1979, done a couple of novelizations for um, for, for publishers to get me through the uh, the ITV strike of 1979. They'd had the, the the dual effect of first convincing me that I could make a go of this as a career, and also um, that um, I didn't really want novelizations to become my reputation. Not if I wanted to be a serious serious novelist you know working in the popular novel field but you know someone who is serious about what they do so i took the name uh, john lidecker from a saturday night theater that i written for radio 4 called an alternative to suicide which was a science fiction play with michael jaston in the lead wow. and one of the characters in that was um a guy called uh, lidecker and um I'd taken that name from Howard and Theodore Lidecker, the two brothers who were special effects technicians at Republic Studios when they were doing the Captain Marvel serial. So they were the two guys who made Captain Marvel fly. And they then went on to do all of Erwin Allen's shows. So they were the uh, the designers and the, um, the the operators of the Sea View in Voice to the Bottom of the Sea. So I stole their name and I, uh, I became John Lidecker for the... Um, for the Who novelization, and I used it a couple of times in other places, and then I thought, "Oh, this is daft," and I let it go. But on the other hand, you know, I um, I'm quite fond of the guy. <laughs> you know, he's uh, he's part of my past. My sister-in-law gave me a paperweight with uh, the John Lydecker signature engraved on it because because uh, if ever I, I would sign any uh, Doctor Who books, I'd do the two signatures. You know, I'd do mine and I'd do John Lydecker because there are some people who wouldn't quite accept that they'd got the author of the book if I signed my name. So I'd, I would do both and I still do both. Both, um, but that's how that came about, and the um, you know the the way the novelization came about was you know as I say it was it was uh, we got written in a fever and uh, and delivered, and then it had to be changed, and the myth grew up, and it was many years later you know that I, I forget how long it was, and I forget who it was who first suggested trying to put it back together, so. Yeah, I, I handed over the envelope and said, "There you go, have a go." And it um, it resided for a while, and then um, a while after that, Doctor Matt Hills, um, who uh, who has you know, written very valuable commentaries on fan cultures, he had a go, um, but uh, was uh, was defeated by that. And then subsequently, Gareth Kavanagh of Cutaway Comics, um, he was prepared to have a go as well, and he was the one, he was the person who made the contact with BBC Books and asked them if they would be up for it. And at that time they said, no, sorry, we're, uh, we're busy. Um, at the time they had um, a bunch of new target novelizations in hand and they just hadn't room in the schedule for anything new and they hadn't room you know, on the desktop for, uh, for any new work. So that kind of went by the by. And uh, Gareth and I went off and we, we came up with Faustine. Uh, now, Gareth had a, a project called Gods and Monsters, which is the kind of expanded Who universe. Um, the uh, the writers of Classic Who retained the copyrights in all their characters and all their monsters. So those of us who worked in that era, we don't own anything of Doctor Who itself. We don't own the TARDIS. We don't own Romana. Um, we don't own K9, but Bob Baker does. Um, but the things that we brought into it, and in my case, that's the Tharrells, the Gundans, the Gateway. Um, I own all of that. That's my that's my my copyright in my universe. So to 
to extend that universe, um, Gareth suggested that I I come in on the Gods and Monsters project, and uh, and you know expand the uh, the stories of the the Tharals and the Gundans. So I did that, and then when uh, when I delivered uh, Faustine, which is the uh, the comic, the graphic novel that came out of it, um, I remembered this approach to BBC books and. Uh, I got in touch with them again and said, look, you know, I know we talked about this two or three years ago and you weren't up for it then. Should I take it that you're never going to be up for it? Or, you know, might things have uh, cooled down a little bit and might you be up for it now? And I got an immediate reply saying, yes, we're definitely up for it. Um, it turned out my timing was good because they already had the new novelizations, you know, lined up for uh, for the uh, for the anniversary. And I kind of hopped onto that bandwagon, you know, and, and Warriors Gate kind of slipped in as an extra one on the list. And uh, so I'm really pleased at the way that turned out. And what I did was um, because there was no editorial budget there, so um, so there was no editorial budget to to employ Gareth to do it. I kind of bit the bullet and uh, did the reassembly myself. And it's probably as well that I did, because once I got my head back into it, then uh, it's like the 40 years melted away and I could uh, I could put it all back together and see where all the joins were. And, uh... and then on top of that, um, because when I'd when I'd done that um, and BBC books weren't weren't up for it, BBC Audio stepped in and said, well, if the books won't do it, we'll do it. So it came out as a BBC audio read by John Culshaw, which is kind of the next best thing to getting Tom Baker on board for it, uh, with John Leeson doing uh, doing the voice of K9. So the thing existed by the time I'd come to uh, to re repropose it to uh, BBC Books, and uh, in the meantime, I'd also done an, another ten thousand word novella about Romana and uh, Laszlo and what happened after they left the gateway at the end of Warrior's Gate by the request of BBC Audio as a, a one-off audio reading, um, which um, which also, you know, I think went very well. And my idea was to put the two together and just see them, you know, published in one place as one continuous work. And Steve Cole, the editor at Target, said, well, we would love that. Um, but also, you know, we'd like some new material just to uh, just to add that little extra attraction to uh, to new readers who might already have the uh, the things in in other forms. So I did a, another story. My original idea had been to do a linking story between the two, but when I looked at it, you didn't need a linking story because one flowed on into the other. So I did a postscript, which is you know some time later picking up the threads from both stories and rounding the whole thing off and then sending it forward into uh, into the future of the Doctor. I believe you've got the eighth Doctor in this section, which is uh, an interesting choice. Yeah, well, there were certain restrictions on which Doctors I could use because I didn't just want to go back to, uh, to number four again. Um, and um, I wanted to move things on. And there were restrictions over, you know, which version of the Doctor knew what about what at what time. And I thought, well, if I go for the Eighth Doctor, then um, then he kind of stands outside of all the other continuity, which meant that I had to go and dig out the, um, the TV movie, which I'd seen on transmission and thought was fine um, and not really given much thought to ever since. And I watched that again, and I thought, bloody hell, this is terrific. You know, it, it was obviously not... It's... <laughs> 
It wasn't appreciated enough at the time, I don't think, but it seems to me that it holds all the germs of everything that's there in, in New Doctor Who. In the revival, every, that, that, that fantastic scene where, uh, where the, um, the, the companion, I've forgotten her name, Grace, is it? Yep. Uh, is at the opera and gets the call to come in. So you see her you know, pounding down the hospital corridor in the big dress with the opera playing you know and and an emergency to get to and you know the doctor on the table at the other end and i thought those style flourishes and that tone and everything else um really presages what was what was to come you know in in the russell t davis revival and also you know had had many of the elements that made that successful yeah, and so I seized upon that, uh, and I also looked at um, Stephen Moffat's little kind of four-minute, five-minute webisode that um, he'd he'd um, he brought Paul McGann back for, which again was a terrific little piece, which I absolutely loved. And uh, I thought, well, how can I bridge between the two? You know, is there uh, is there territory between those two? I didn't go into the big finish Paul McGann stuff, and I didn't go into all the offline stuff because there's a limit to how much you can take in and to how much you want to be a slave to Canon. You know, I mean, Canon's there for for my money. It's there to be used and to be you know skirted skirted around if it's not convenient and built upon if it's uh, if it's inspiring. So I took some inspiration from that and. Um, and bish bash bosh, there you go. You've got the book. Fantastic. I'm, I think particularly the fact that uh, I'm so looking forward to reading it. I'm, I'm due a copy any day now. BBC are ah. due to send me a copy. Um, I'd hoped to have it today, but sadly not. But uh, it's. I think it's really exciting. And particularly, I think the fact that I'm looking forward to seeing what you as an established author is going to do with The Eighth Doctor. That's something that mm. particularly excites me. Oh, well, I can't say anything about it, can I? <laughs> I've committed myself to the page, you know. I'll either excite or disappoint you, and there's nothing I can do about it at this point. Yeah, but I think there's something about Paul McGann's just got a, a restless energy to him. Mm. It's just, it's almost like he's a, he's a coiled spring just ready to explode at any point and go boing. Mm. I would have happily seen him come back, you know, in a later Doctor incarnation. There's, there's nobody in the show that I would wish away but I you know it would have been nice if um, if for example for uh, for the uh, for the new revival my fleeting thought when I heard that there was going to be a new doctor but before shooty or, or anything else had been uh, had been announced I thought well wouldn't it be terrific if you're gonna have this thing of well you know we've had a woman should we have another woman is it sort of making some sort of statement if we don't have another woman and I thought well if if the doctor comes back and it's the eighth doctor and he immediately um vanishes and then the rest of the uh, the season is the hunt for the doctor by you know a ragtag band of companions who've you know got the use of something like the tardis and um and then you can actually kind of fill in the gaps of what's been happening with the eighth doctor you know by implication and by flashback or by by hint and everything else as you go along and then do something further down the line. I just would have liked to have seen McGann get, you know, a, a run at it. 
Dear Russell T. Davis, here's an idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you see, you don't do that. That's the thing. Somebody said, oh, why haven't you, um, you know, why haven't you put yourself forward for the new show? And I said, well, you don't do that. You know, you don't go to Doctor Who. Doctor Who comes to you. <laughs> uh, and that's the way it works. And it's it's kind of, if imagine, you know, if you're, if you're one of the classic writers and you pitch and they say no thanks, it's kind of humiliating. You know, I was I was referred to it as being a long walk back to your seat. Oh, don't go there. Don't go there. <laughs> yeah. so let's go back to Warrior's Gate. Mm-hmm. What can you tell us about how different this new version is compared to the original? I mean, maybe tease something that's, that happens in it that uh, we will not expect. There's n- yeah, it's not so different that you won't recognise it. What is different is um, there's different dialogue. There is a difference in tone and there is a depth of explanation as to how um, the I Ching and the, the space universe and the whole logic of the thing works. The fact that, you know, you've got, um, when you're using an oracle like the I Ching, what you're actually doing is you're reading the universe out of a random sample of something that happens in it. Um, the the notion being that everything affects everything else. And of course, the universe is so vast that you can't really genuinely read anything out of um, a fall of cards or a line on the palm of the hand or, or a fall of coins. But if you took away most of everything else in the universe so that the relationships were hugely reduced and you're in you're in e-space where the only things are you, the coins and a few other things, then all of a sudden the interrelationships of every element um, become much more stark and actually the coins do in the sea space universe begin to predict and begin to behave in a way that tells you something about everything else that's happening around you so on that kind of basis most of that kind of had to go out the window for the uh, for the fast-moving um, TV script um, and that's back in the book um, and there are certain other things, there are certain uh, certain places that some characters go um, where that was changed for TV. Uh, Romana has a different role. Uh, K9 has um, K9 has a different emphasis. Um, and this is mostly things that other people have pointed out to me, you know, having read both, um, things that I wasn't consciously aware of when I was doing it but there is a certain kind of uh, wistful sadness to K9's demise in that K9 is self-aware and and he knows what's happening to him whereas um, K9 was not a character that was always taken too seriously in the in the course of the show itself um, and I mean quite right it's a bloody robot dog for God's sake <laughs> <laughs> You know, if you're going to create an artificial intelligence, you know, at least put it in something you can carry around, perhaps. Or... Yeah, like an Ori from Blake 7 or something <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, the, yeah I, mean, I mean, there was a whimsical kids' show element to K9, which um, I always thought, you know, deserved a little bit more. Um, so I gave it a little bit more, and a little bit more came out. So that's back in. Um, other than that, you know, you'd, what I wouldn't want to do is if somebody from their childhood loves the Warriors Gate book and, and you know, and, and doesn't want to see it changed or resents change or is unhappy at the idea of it being changed, I don't want to devalue that experience. You know, the, um, the original experience is as valid as anything. Um, but what I'm offering is a glimpse into um, what 
you know, what had been before and what might have been. I haven't gone through and improved on it. All I've done is I've put it back to where it was before other hands got hold of it. So I've not uh, I've not done a kind of director's cut where, you know, like Spielberg going back to Close Encounters and taking you inside the, um, the alien spacecraft at the end, when in fact it was a lot more powerful when you didn't see what happened inside. Because when he went inside, then, oh shit, yeah, model work. <laughs> model work and some special effects, oh great. Whereas previously, you know, your imagination ran riot as to what would happen when he got in there. And I know that Spielberg has since gone back and taken all that out and said, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that again. Lucas, on the other hand, has, uh, has, has got no such compunction. <laughs> no, have some more CGI. In fact, have yeah. even more CGI. Yeah. So, yeah. Sometimes that when you've got, I, I mean, I think that's what's really excited me is the fact that we're getting your original intent and your original vision. Mm. And it's, I think that's what really excites me just to, to see how you intended because as I said earlier I love what we got on TV and just that magical element to it and the beautiful visuals and now just to have this so I did wonder when you were going back did you have the actors voices in mind now that they've been cast because obviously when you originally wrote it you wouldn't have had oh that's a tricky one yeah I suppose so yeah I mean particularly like the two guys they were Aldo and Waldo in the original um, and Barry Letts, as I understand it, um, jumped on that and says, no, 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 it's, uh, we're turning it into a comedy show. We can't have that. It's turning it into a pantomime. So they became Aldo and Royce, which not good choices from my point of view anyway. But also, you know, Aldo and Waldo were comedy relief double act. Um, and that was the intention. You know, there was a lot very highfalutin stuff going on elsewhere and these two were a kind of grounded Rosencrantz and Guildenstern pair so I really couldn't see the, the thinking behind that but when I came back to um, when I came back to work on it obviously you know those two actors um, embodied it in my head you know they, they'd kind of erased anything that might have been there before and I suppose to a certain extent that happened all the way through the effects makeup and everything else, um, I kind of, I had it in mind, but again, I was more wedded to my original vision, which had been uh, a bit less budget conscious and a bit less compromised than what we actually finished up with. I mean, the the, the makeup department did an absolutely terrific job with the Tharrells. Um They must have had like, you know, Fortons to play with um, and to get the effect that they got. But if you actually you know, put that up against you know, something like Ron Perlman's uh, makeup in uh, The American Beauty and the Beast or any of the CGI stuff that's come since, then obviously the seams show and the budget shows. Whereas I'd been thinking, um, you know, to refer back to Cocteau, it was Jean Marais in La Belle et la Bête, Beauty and the Beast, you know, the beast makeup in that, which I still think is the best kind of beast makeup that I've ever seen in any format and and that was done basically with spirit gum and uh, and hair and um perhaps not even latex i don't know was did they have uh, did they have latex makeup stuff in the 1940s it's hard to say anyway <laughs> i digress <laughs> but yeah i mean i to a certain extent there were some character uh, overlays of the actors in in my memories and in other in other areas where um 
where I kind of felt my original vision was still stronger then that was still showing through for me but you know you will have your own that's the thing that's that's the great thing about um about prose as opposed to anything else in that um the the thing gets played out in the reader's head and the reader is not only a participant the reader is kind of a co-creator wonderful and of course now of course we've got the cover and it finally says warrior's gate by stephen gallagher you must be delighted when you saw that cover yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I wasn't in no sense of I um, sort of felt kind of cheated or disowned by the John Lydecker name being on it because everybody knows who wrote it. You know, I mean, I made no secret of that. And as I say, you know, I've, I've always you know, been quite proud of John. And if anybody says, how is he these days? I say he's perfectly happy on his private island, you know, <laughs> sipping cocktails and uh, watching, the, watching the tide roll in and out. So... But yeah, it was it was nice to be able to do that simply, you know, after all this time to know that something you did 40 years ago now, if not just a little bit more than 40 years, had enough life in it to uh, to still have breath and to still be current and to uh, and to still actually get some people excited. Well, I'm excited, which is great. (laughs) So what are you up to at the moment? What are you working on? And where can people find out and keep up to date with you? Well, you can find out and keep up to date. I have a blog, stephengallagher.com. I do have a Twitter account, at Bruligan, uh, but God knows how long that's going to last. You know, while, <laughs> while, the, while the service gets reduced and reduced. And in the meantime, I've been working on um, I, I, the... Let's see, the Faustine graphic novel will be coming out pretty soon. We were, we had a couple of uh, delays on that for health reasons of people in the in the pipeline, but that's uh, been resolved now, so that's all going ahead. I have other graphic novel stuff on the on the stocks. I'm working on two shows. One is uh, is is a, a feature, possibly a streaming feature for a German producer, and the other is a very big international. Um, historical drama which got stymied by um, by COVID. I was about to board a plane to New Zealand in May of 2020. We were going to scout locations, we were going to have meetings with all the kind of, you know, the, the major cultural organisations down there. The whole thing was getting up on its feet and then of course you know what happened in June 90, uh, 2020 so, uh, so that all got put on uh, I thought it had actually been killed, actually, but it turns out it was just lying dormant and in recent months has has raised its head again. So I'm continuing to work on that. And of course, we're now working to get it back up to the point where it was when we when we had to stop. But there's not a lot more I can say about that. Okay, well, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Steve, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real joy. And uh, I hope that my fanish bubbling enthusiasm (laughs) hasn't overwhelmed you too much. Oh, no, I feed upon it like a vampire. (laughs) (laughs) It's been great to talk to you, Kenny. Thank you. And thank you. Speak again soon. Cheers. Cheers. So we'll move back to the novelisation. Did either of you read John Lidecker's work at the time? I would assume that uh, even though, Stevie, you've admitted you've you've not been much of a reader in recent years due to the fact that you've had no time. Um, (laughs) Is this one that you read back in the day? Oh, oh yes. And... Of course, there was no way to rewatch back in the day, so that was my go-to thing. I seem to recall it expanded on quite a lot of bits and pieces. It was still the same story, um, but expanded a bit more. I think that's when I realised the slavery stuff properly all going on. A good read. It's one of my 
one of my target books that I still retain. Yep, I read it at the time. I think what was back in '82, I think uh, that it came out. I, I've I read it once at least. Um, it's not one that I've I've returned to quite simply because all of my all of my target novelizations are in a very safe place that I can't get to them. Well, <laughs> I can get to them, but be enormously inconvenient. So yeah, so it's in there somewhere, and I can almost see it, but getting to it is is. Yeah, uh, almost impossible. Just that little niggle around Doctor Who and Warrior's Gate. You know, <laughs> why the and? Come on. Yeah, I know. Doctor yeah, Who, Warrior's Gate. Yeah, I'm glad they dropped that. It's good. It's good that they did drop it. Um, but I, I think that I'm sure that because I mean, I've not read it in a while. But the thing that I remember is that it was didn't have any chapters. I'm sure it was just one continuous read. I could be wrong, but yeah, that's, that's how right. I remember mm-hmm. it. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. Which, again, it's 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 messing with your head, Kenny. It's all in there. How do I know this stuff? <laughs> the signs of my teenage years. Um, mm-hmm. I should. I seem to remember that it it had quite a lot of science in it as well, and quite a lot of plausible science. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, talking about gravity. I, I seem to remember gravity, and it was all to do with the dwarfs. The ship being made out of dwarfs, our ally, wasn't it? Yeah. It was so heavy that it was pulling everything in, mm. and it may not have been sound science, but it still makes you think. And for me, off I went to find out what this was. Was it real? Yeah. And the rest is history. Yeah. Well, at this moment, I don't have a copy of it, but I'm really looking forward to getting it because we're going to get, as Steve just told us, his original version of how he intended it to be before they had to make all the changes by the director Paul Joyce and script editor Chris Bidmead to make it work in television so I'm really looking forward to to seeing how different it is because as Steve said it's it's the same story but different and getting different motivations and seeing just how he originally envisaged it which I think makes for an interesting read. I believe there were production problems but I believe our beloved Graham Harper was involved in shooting some scenes is that correct or am I imagining that? I believe he took over and directed some stuff when things got quite fraught for Paul Joyce. So yeah, and I think that's what convinced JNT to get Graham on the director's course. And then of course, well, we have uh, some results that speak for themselves from yeah. him doing it. Yeah. So yes, I'm hugely looking forward to this one and uh, cannot wait to get my hands on it and give it a good read and just see how different it is and have it all pulled together. John, will you be buying it? It's pre-ordered. Yep. So I won't ask you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It would just sit on a shelf. It would sit on a shelf. It would look pretty, but that's yeah. that's not what books are for. <laughs> no, books are for being read. It's like having action figures. You've got to take them out of the pack and open them and, and play with them. Have you not Absolutely. seen Toy Story Two, people? <sighs> look at the prospector. Yeah. He was not happy. Oh dear, dear, oh dear. Oh, toys, toys are there to be loved. Exactly, exactly. Mm. So there we go. That's the end of our little chat at about uh, Warrior's Gate and our chat with Steve Gallagher. So huge thanks to him for taking the time to have a natter with the power of three. So that's us for another week. We'll be back next week to complete our look at the original BBC and other audio productions from before Big Finish when we have a chat about Slipback. And we will be sharing our views and thoughts on that and of course because we are wibbly wobbly timey wimey 
we've actually already recorded that episode, so aren't we smug and clever? <laughs> have, have, have we, Kenny? Sorry, have I got to go back and do that now? John, did you do that yesterday or, or was that tomorrow for you? I I walk the timelines, Stevie, like a like a pro. Mm. So, yeah, and, and as he strokes, I've done it strokes his beard. Yes, I've done it twice. <laughs> You've yeah. done it twice. Oh, I better, yeah, I better nip back into V space and then work my way around. Yeah, I'll make a circuit and bring it back. You better do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I cross the void beyond the mind, the empty space, the circles time. I seek for other stumble blind. I am Kenny Smith, the Saddy. Yeah. So there we so, go. Kenny, um, question for you. Yes. Are we playing out with silence? Or just the sound of the time winds? Well, I haven't had a curry in a while, so no, we'll not be having we don't have the time for wind. So we'll go with something else, Stevie. Thank you for your question. We're actually going to go with something that I think is quite appropriate because this story's got quite a dreamlike quality, would you agree? Absolutely. And it's Warrior's Gate. So I thought we could actually combine those two things and have a song from the Dream Warriors. And they're going to give us my definition of a boombastic jazz style, which has got a little sample from Quincy Jones that you may recognise as the Austin Powers theme. So until next time, I've been Kenny. I've been John. And I've been Stevie, mostly. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye, Romana. Bye, Kenny. Are you ready for one another? Dream Warriors noise is new discover Once again with a new blend, so telephone a friend. Yo, Dream Warriors got this new song, it's dope, man. Compact <laughs> to the prime is optimist. Bands of friends, I'm universal and cosmic. Concrete jungles abound. Stand by the speaker, you're smothered and covered up in the sound. You stand strong as you pump your fist. I'm talking all that jazz. Now what's my definition? My definition, my definition, my definition is this, my definition, my definition, my definition, my definition is this, my definition, my definition is this, my definition. It's often said to do damage Skin so strong, even Superman needs a hand So bob your head, dread as I kick the funk flow This rhyme is subliminal, yet you don't think so I walk with a gold cane, a gold brain and no gold chain Behind the truth lies, there lies a parapet In the mix is where dream warriors go Define if you will, but I know so There is no definition My definition, my definition My definition is this, my definition My definition, my definition, my definition is this, my definition, my definition is this, my definition. Right now I know it's a poet just like a poet, your definition of me is definitely wrong. Why must I try to lie and build an alibi? All you ask is just for me to be me Replace a replaceable replacement with this Relax, relax, relaxation, move fast My name is King Lou Mine is capital Q Bags of mostly water, search to find my definition My definition, my definition My definition is this My definition, my definition My definition, my definition is this My definition, my definition is this My definition
through the dust of strife. I sought meaning to my music addiction. Arise, awaken, we have need to reverse. A plague has befallen us, no time to rehearse. This rhyme speaks, is speaking, has spoken. This rhyme will not change things, it needs to be changed in a hearse. You find caskets in my rhyme baskets, alright. No definition can define the what's my definition. My definition, my definition, my definition is this, my, my definition. definition, my definition, my definition, my definition is this, my definition, my definition is this, my definition. Yo, where'd everybody go? Uh, John, would you mind giving us a hand with this heavy alloy that I need to go across this vortex and just watch so that we don't pull lots of castles and ships together? Kenny gets flattened in the process. And let's mind not scratch the lino. Yeah. Yep. Right. Gently. Gently now. Come on. To me. To you. To me. To you. That castle's getting very close. To who? Oh. To who? <laughs> who knows, eh? eh? Who knows? <laughs>